This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Friday morning from 10 to 11 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. One of my favorite events in the Columbia Arts Year is the annual One Read program organized by the Daniel Boone Regional Library. Over my 16 years in Columbia, I have been introduced to many books that I might otherwise not have noticed. But more than that, it is the idea of this shared experience of which we are all a part. Reading is a mostly solitary experience. And I think of one read as the equivalent of watching a movie at the cinema and then having the chance to chat about it in the bar afterwards versus watching it alone at home and then just going to bed. And after this past 18 months, those shared experiences have even more appeal and resonance than before. This year, Colombians got to vote on two books, The Resisters by Gish Jen about baseball in a dystopian future America and Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee, written by my guest this morning, Casey Sepp. Casey is a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine in which she writes often about faith and history and reviews books. She has a Bachelor of Arts degree from Harvard and a Master in Philosophy from the University of Oxford, where she studied as a Rhodes Scholar. Her book, Furious Hours, is at once about a true crime serial killer, the Reverend Willie Maxwell, about Alabama politics in the George Wallace years and a 1970s courtroom drama that put a small Alabama town in the national news, and a biographical portrait of one of America's most beloved authors, Harper Lee, and her attempt to turn the story of the Reverend into a book. Furious Hours is Casey Sepp's first book, and she is joining me today from her home in Maryland. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Casey. Thanks so much for having me. So a Rhodes Scholarship is an incredibly prestigious award, and Oxford is a history-brimming English city in which to wander, even if Cecil Rhodes was a bad boy of British imperialism. Were you able to overlook the history of the scholarship's founder and enjoy that sweet city with her dreaming spires and explore much of our tiny curio of a country? Gosh, I mean, that's a sweet question. And you're, you know, incorporating into that some of the the bits of England that Harper Lee loved. She was a huge Anglophile and got to spend a little bit of time there as well. And your intro, though, reminds me when I won the roads, you know, you interview, they, they do these interviews around the country because it's by region. And so I, I got to come home and see my parents right before I interviewed. And then I went to church with them right after. And I had a lot of wonderful ministers growing up. And I, I think probably in ways that, you know, matter to people who identify as people of faith, they were all morally serious and they cared a great deal about justice. And so not surprisingly, you know, instead of feting me and congratulating me for the scholarship, my my pastor stood up at the front by the altar and cataloged Cecil Rhodes's sins and talked about, <laughs> you know, just avarice and plunder and really gave a little excursus on colonialism. And, 
I think by the end of it, you know, a lot of people in the parish, most of whom had not heard of a Rhodes Scholarship before, were sort of confused about whether this was a good thing or a bad thing or <laughs> what it meant. And, you know, then I said, well, I'll, I'm going to be studying religion, so hopefully I'll, I'll learn something and put all of this to good use. So, yes, I, I think, you know, what, what a wonderful question because it tells the truth about the thing, um, which, you know, more and more we're all trying to do. And I think part of what was fun about my book was getting to do that about Alabama and this country and Harper Lee. But yes, I did have a wonderful time. It is a tremendous gift. I was able to study religion, but just do a lot of reading and traveling while I was there. So yes, it was a formative time for me and one I, I look back on very fondly. Studying in Oxford is one of the many things you have in common with Harper Lee. She too studied there in 1948. She was a daddy's girl and a tomboy. She grew up in a small town and she had a journalist sensibility about the importance of reporting fact and not conjecture. Did you feel something of a kinship with Harper Lee before setting out on this book? And did your relationship with her change as you delved into this story? Yeah, absolutely. I I think like a lot of folks who undertake journalistic or biographical projects, you're drawn to write about the things that pre-existingly interest you. And, And certainly that was true of Harper Lee. For me, I had grown up, I think probably like a lot of young tomboys, just idolizing Scout and identifying with the character in the novel. And the part of Maryland where I'm from and where I still live today is very rural, very agricultural, and, you know, in, in some good and some some bad ways identifies more with the South than with the North. And so the book had really always felt relevant to me and important to me. And that was certainly what drew me to this story was this pre-existing relationship with the novel. So it was, it was wonderful to get to spend a lot of time thinking about Harper Lee's life and why she became a writer and what about writing was difficult for her. And then in particular, this one nonfiction project that she chewed on for for a number of years after To Kill a Mockingbird. But it's certainly true, I think, like any biographer, you know, your emotional relationship to your subject is a bit of a roller coaster. And, you know, you sit down to work some days and you think they're the most interesting person who ever lived. And another day you sit down and you think, why have I decided to hitch my wagon to the star? You know, the I'd rather think about anyone in American history or, you know, in the American canon. And so, yes, you ride the roller coaster of adoration and love and affection or disapproval. And I think with Harper Lee, it's such an interesting story, her literary career. You know, in many ways, she wrote one of the most successful novels of all time. But of course, much of her life as a writer was characterized by frustration and failure. And indeed, the subject of my book is this project, which by all accounts, she didn't finish. So in some ways, quite difficult to write about the failure of someone you admire. Useful, I think useful to us all to remember that even very successful people struggle. Um, and there are lots of things I'm sure we'll talk about, the many reasons that writing mm. was difficult for her, but to realize the things that made her life difficult, you know, talking about them, analyzing them, coming to terms with them, might make life a little easier for some other artist or some other person. So I think it's all worthwhile. But yes, you know, if if you ask any biographer, I really do think they kind of run the gamut. It's like a marriage, you know, on your wedding day, it's the most wonderful thing you've ever done. And there are bits and troubles and foibles and failures along the way too. And I think you just sort of hope to 
never divorce. And certainly I didn't. I did finish the book. And I still feel very in love with her story and very interested in her life and certainly have a deeper relationship to Alabama and the the places that were meaningful to her. I mean, she is one of the most examined authors of the 20th century. Did it feel intimidating at any time working on her story for your first book? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great question. And of course it did. I, I think what's significant about her career is she managed something that's quite difficult. Often people have a lot of critical success, but they don't have much commercial success or they're extremely successful commercially. They sell millions of books, but they, they don't win awards and they're not taken seriously by the critical establishment. And what was so peculiar about To Kill a Mockingbird is it managed to satisfy both of those audiences. So it won the Pulitzer when it was published in 1960 and right away was a bestseller and for all sorts of interesting reasons having to do with genuine readership, but also school reading lists and the canonization of novels for young people. The the book has remained in print and over the years sold 40 million copies. But unlike plenty of other authors. What's so interesting is the critical establishment took an interest in Harper Lee early and then kind of lost interest. So a funny thing about her is even while she was one of the best known American authors, there was very little academic scholarship about the novel and about her writing. Um, There was a biography that came out in 2005 that I remember reading when it came out that tried to answer the question everybody had wondered about, you know, what happened to Harper Lee? But There was one University of Alabama professor who put out two books about her and a couple of law professors who wrote about the character of Atticus Finch. But to some extent, the Critical Academy kind of looked away. In any event, you know, she's just interesting because of all that success um, and just the tremendous admiration she had from the general reading public. I, I can't tell you the number of people who will say to me, like, I've only read five books in my life, but To Kill a Mockingbird is one of them and I've read it five times. It breaks through, I think, you know, a kind of disregard for literature, I think, that that we can look around and see. And, you know, I love these One Reads program because they they often bring out people who don't identify as readers or literary people. Um, And I, I think that's a wonderful thing. To Kill a Mockingbird is chosen quite often for that reason by towns and colleges and people who maybe they were supposed to read it in middle school but didn't, or it's the one thing they really remember loving in high school, return to the novel and find just as much interest um, or, or just as much meaning in it as they did when they were a young reader. So, you know, of course it was intimidating to try and write a book about such a person. <laughs> you know, people bring, you know, it's like writing about someone's grandmother. They they bring love and affection and pride. And, you know, especially when it comes to people who knew her in Alabama and in New York, friends and family of hers, they're extremely protective and they have a real stake in what's said about her. And even Alabamians more generally are Southerners who feel protective of her legacy and realize that it is an interesting time to think about race and diversity in this country. And so, you know, I I think have all sorts of protective instincts about the book and about her and about white Southerners more generally. They bring a lot of anxiety and enthusiasm often, but, but a little bit of anxiety to any new work. You know, so I completely understand all of the skepticism that people bring to a book like this. And It's just been really rewarding. Sometimes you hear from the kind of tough customers who are like, 
I didn't expect to like it because you're not from Alabama or, you know, how could a northerner, you know, really understand small town Alabama? But I just think that's the obligation you have no matter what part of the world you're writing about or what kind of person you're writing about. And certainly I felt just as big a burden around writing about the other characters in the book too. Anytime you're writing about real people, you, as Harperly intimated, you know, you have an obligation to the truth and to do them justice. And I think for me, yes, I knew Harperly was this beloved internationally known figure, but I cared just as much about the relatively obscure black minister whose story I would be telling and whose family would be newly exposed to scrutiny. And same for the white lawyer. There's a character in this book who was certainly capable of self-mythology far more than Harper <laughs> ever did. And, you know, he has a huge family in Alabama and you, you want to be mindful of the way you tell anyone's story. But yeah, in any event, long answer, teasing out all of the many ways in which anytime you write about living people, you, you take the deep breath of, I hope I get this right. And I, I hope wherever the story goes, they feel like it's the truth. And even if they wouldn't have told it the exact same way. They they can't complain about the way you've told it. I know you've answered this question a hundred times before, but I'm always surprised when seemingly huge stories just slowly disappear into the sands of time and then get unearthed years later. And you think, how do I not know this story? So tell us how you stumbled upon the story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell and Harper Lee's involvement. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And certainly as someone who did love Harper Lee and love To Kill a Mockingbird, I, I thought I knew kind of what there was to know about her. Um, but I didn't, of course. And the, the biography I mentioned that came out about Harper Lee mentions the Maxwell case in this true crime business, but very briefly. And when I read it, I read right past it. So for me, there was real shock and surprise Um just to remind folks, To Kill a Mockingbird was published in 1960, but in 2015, there was this kind of shocking announcement from Harper Lee's publisher, Harper Collins, that they would be publishing a new book of hers. And, you know, new book turned out to be kind of a euphemism of the PR team there. Ghost at a Watchman was actually a draft of To Kill a Mockingbird. So it was the first version of the make story that Harper Lee had written before to Kill a Mockingbird. Um, she wrote it when she first moved to New York and she was figuring out how to be a writer. And once she found an agent and an editor, those two individuals helped her shape the story and revise the story and, and it became To Kill a Mockingbird. So that's what Ghost Set a Watchman was. But, you know, it was this tremendously exciting announcement. And like a lot of other reporters, I went down to Alabama because there were all these questions, you know, had she actually written it? Where had the manuscript been? Why was it being published now? Her, Harper Lee's older sister, Alice, who had been um, both a kind of financial guardian and a steward of her literary reputation had just passed away a few months before. So one of the real questions people had was, is this a money grab? Who's decided to publish it? Harper Lee was older. She was in her 80s. There had been some insinuation that maybe her health had declined like her sister's. And so, you know, there were questions about elder abuse and consent and all sorts of things sort of swirling in the ether in this tiny, tiny Alabama town. And Harper Lee had moved into an assisted living home so no one could talk to her. You know, there were these, you know, strange kind of nomic statements being issued on her behalf. And, you know, so this was the story. And like a lot of other people, I was happy to go down and chase it. And, you know, I mentioned loving to kill a mockingbird 
when I was a kid. So it was a real thrill to get to go down and see the Monroe County Courthouse and see the house that she had lived a lot of her life in and just move around the town, which, you know, not to reduce fiction to autobiography, but Makeham and Monroeville, the town that Harper Lee wrote about and the town where she was born and raised are awfully similar um, and interestingly similar. So I, I loved getting to go around and talk to people who knew her and poke around at the details of her life. And one of the many stories that kind of emerged was when it was announced that there was going to be this new book by Harper Lee, what a lot of people thought was that it was going to be a book called The Reverend. And, you know, they thought it was going to be this nonfiction project that she had started in the late 70s, um, that she had talked about a lot, that her family had talked about a lot, that, you know, she had talked to Gregory Peck about having a role in, and she had told everyone about the title and what the publisher thought. And so for a lot of people in Monroeville, and certainly a lot more people in Alexander City, where the murders had taken place and the trials of the murderer had taken place, and that's what a lot of Alabamians thought in 2015 was going to be finally published. And, you know, when someone said to me, well, we all thought it was the true crime book, I was like, what true crime book? <laughs> you know, like, In Cold Blood? That came out a long time ago because, you know, she had helped Capote with In Cold Blood. And, you know, in just the way you put on your big journalist britches, you know, I was like, well, you know, the true crime book, In Cold Blood came out at 19, 19- you know, and people looked at me like, you know, I thought you said you knew Harper Lee's life story. And, I think it's just, you've you've characterized it exactly right. You know, it's extremely well known to the people who lived it. This was a real crime story that unfolded over a period of seven years and a literary project of Harper Lee's that unfolded for years after that. So they all know it and they were all waiting and wondering, but the rest of the world had forgotten if they ever knew. So I was just really lucky. You know, this, this time capsule of Ghosts at a Watchman opened which was supposed to tell us a lot more about Harper Lee's life in the 1950s and about her sense of racial justice in the 1950s and the kind of complicated relationship she had with her father, which I think it did all those things. And it's a wonderfully interesting novel, even if it's not the literary accomplishment that To Kill a Mockingbird was. It's it's a fascinating political and social document and incredibly interesting for people who want to learn about revision and how editing works and how, you know, novelists can be shaped and formed and how their work can unfold over time. But it wasn't the reverend. And so for me, it was a lot of fun to be kind of handed this interesting story that, you know, as far as anybody in Alabama was concerned, why would you bother writing about the Maxwell case? Because you could be scooped by Harper Lee at any moment. She had already claimed this story, and there were real reasons that people just thought, well, Harper Lee is writing that book, like, we'll leave it alone. And, you know, the local paper would cover the anniversary of the murders, or every so often if someone involved passed away, they would run a obituary that would kind of get into all the details of these cases. But but nobody had really come to do a book-length version because they were all unsure of how much of the story Harper Lee had gotten down. And just as Ghost at a Watchman was the surprise announcement, a lot of people thought that could be what happened with the Reverend too. You mentioned towards the end of the book that at some point Harper Lee had been contacted by a writer, is it Madison Jones? Yeah. And she had handed everything over to Madison. Did Madison ever write a book or what happened to all the papers that she gave him? 
This was one of these fun canards where people remembered something, but they didn't quite remember it accurately. So yeah, Madison Jones was an interesting Southern writer. And he, um, at one point in time, was a writer in residence at Auburn University. And so I just, there I just said, oh, nobody wanted to write about this. But Madison Jones actually in the late 80s, so 10 years after Harper Lee has been knocking on doors and getting police files and sat through this trial, which, you know, for folks who haven't read the book, Harper Lee heard about this case after the alleged serial killer was was gunned down by a vigilante. And, and that assassination took place very publicly in, in front of a few hundred people at a funeral home during the services for the last victim, alleged victim of the Reverend Maxwell. And so, you know, this had been splashed all over the papers and Harper Lee came to this town in time to sit through the trial of the vigilante. And that was in the summer of 1977. So 10 years later, this guy, Madison Jones, who, you know, somebody, he's in Auburn, not too far away from Alex City, where all these murders took place. He hears about the reverend's case. He starts to talk to one of the reverend's nephews. So he's got kind of this inside track and, you know, he's trying to figure out whether he should work on a novel. Maybe he'll write a nonfiction book, but he's heard what everybody else has heard, which is, uh uh-uh, don't go too far. <laughs> In case you didn't know, Pulitzer Prize winner, you know, big shot Harper Lee is already working on this. So he, thankfully, you know, from my perspective, thank God, he doesn't just move on. He writes her a letter and he says, I've heard you're interested in this and trying to be polite. Like, I just want to know if you're going to, if you're going to do something with it, like I won't. And, you know, but what's up? What's up? Are you going to do this or not? And I love the letter. Harper Lee was an incredibly gifted correspondent. One of the things I love most about working on the book was just get to dig around in so many of the letters she wrote, friends and family, but also just random strangers. And she was like ESPN recounting all of the Alabama football games. And, you know, when she lived in New York, she had everything to say about, you know, like the mayoral candidates and the people who served as mayor. She was always complaining about city politics. And anyway, so Harper Lee, the great correspondent, writes back to this guy, Madison Jones. And it's such a wonderful exercise in performance because on the one hand, she's itemizing all the reasons she found the Maxwell case frustrating. And that's everything from the (laughs) tremendous magnitude of human vanity, which she says could fill every cassette tape on the earth and, you know, could (laughs) compose a volume as long as the Old Testament. And which is just to say she had really met some characters when she was interviewing people for this project. And in particular, she warns him that, you know, if he hasn't already met this lawyer, Tom Radney, who's the middle figure in my book, that Madison Jones certainly will and that he should be advised this lawyer who represented the reverend and then represented the vigilante who murdered his former client sees himself as a cross between Robert Redford and Atticus Finch, but he's no (laughs) such thing. And he should be careful because if he's looking for a hero, he'll have to invent one because there are no heroes in this story and not to get lost in the weeds of the Maxwell case. But when Harper Lee was working on her book, the reverend, some of the people he was accused of killing were wives And so he was accused of killing his first wife and then his second wife. And if you can believe it, he managed to find a third wife. And that third wife was alive and well when Harper Lee was working on things. And Harper Lee interviewed the reverend's widow. And so, you know, this letter to Madison Jones gets into all the characters and everything. And at the end of it all, Harper Lee says, you know, she lays it all out. Here's where it is. And ostensibly, she's saying, you know, if you want to work on it, good luck. Like, you know, I've been trying 
Um, but then she says just this incredibly strange thing at the end about how he should be advised. So remember, Madison Jones is this writer in residence at Auburn University. She says, you know, be advised if you do, you know, begin work on it, that the reverend had an accomplice slash accessory and that person is alive and well and living not more than 100 miles from you. So this kind of menacing note of at one point she says she was afraid of being sued and then she mentions that there's this menacing figure out there. So it's not exactly an open invitation. (laughs) It's like, here's why this is an impossible book to write um, in charming prose and two type pages from my apartment on the Upper East Side. So that's the Madison Jones story. Somehow, because he had gotten her address in the city from her older sister down in Monroeville, the little town where they were born and raised, somehow this convoluted version of this story became, and she gave him all of her materials, which she by no means did. Oh, <laughs> you know, okay. What she actually did was say, like, good luck, good riddance. You know, <laughs> this thing has been a meddlesome problem for me. Um, and yeah, she, in fact, had not given over her research materials. Um, Anyway, the the long and the short of it is um, she most certainly had not given over those materials because about a year after she died, so not long before I turned in my book, the collection of documents, so court transcripts, um, autopsy files, a lot of the paperwork from the civil litigation, so I haven't managed to specify at all why the reverend was accused of these crimes or or what people thought the motive was, but the motive was life insurance. And, you know, he was alleged to have committed about a half a million dollars in in life insurance fraud, executing policies on all of these people he subsequently was accused of murdering. So in addition to all of the criminal trials for the, the murders, there was just a tremendous amount of legal work that the lawyer Tom Radney had done for the Reverend um, in civil court to claim all of these insurance policies and to force the companies to pay out. So this huge collection of materials from the civil cases and the criminal cases and the autopsy files and transcripts and interview notes and um, all sorts of materials, all of that was found in Harper Lee's apartment about a year after she died. So one of the real joys for me of the book, it was kind of like a James Bond moment, was there had been this outstanding question of, well, what the heck did she do with all of her notes and where did it all go? And she's a little bit of a pack rat, so there had always been the thought it would turn up. And indeed it did in her apartment about a year after she died. So yes, poor Madison Jones, he he might have been able to write his own book if she had forked over the materials, but all she did was kind of you know write him the letter that was like, go ahead and try, see how far you get. So yeah, I mean, I think for me, that's what's so fun about this book. And and I hope for readers, um, there's obviously a a deep mystery at the beginning of the book, which is, did the Reverend commit these crimes? And if so, how did he get away with them? Mm. But there's another literary mystery in the Harper Lee section, which is, you know, how much of her version of this story did she write? Um, and what happened to it. And and that for me was a lot of fun. You know, you asked me what it was like to write about someone I admired. Even more interesting for me was kind of every day waking up wondering, is today the day the reverend, the manuscript going to turn up? Or, you know, is it, speaking of being scooped, you know, it was not lost on me that, you know, if the world could have Harper Lee's version of the Maxwell case, no one would be interested in Casey Sepp's version. This was my first book. You know, I'm not from Alabama. I had no biographical claim to the story. So I, the, the alternating feelings of excitement and 
optimism about her as a writer were, were sometimes tinged with feelings of, you know, oh, gosh, it's not, not going to be much of a first book if, if her version comes out first. <laughs> <laughs> so Furious House has these three distinct sections. You've got true crime of the Reverend Willie Maxwell murdering multiple wives and relatives while surreptitiously taking out life insurance on all of them. Then you've got the middle section, kind of the John Grisham type of courtroom drama politics about Tom Radney, the lawyer who ran for political office multiple times and who not only helped Willie Maxwell receive his spurious life insurance claims, but defended him and then defended Maxwell's own murderer. And then you have the biographical section of the story of Harper Lee and her struggle to write a book that she was going to call The Reverend. And I'm curious about your decision as a writer not to braid these stories together, but to fully immerse the reader in these three different zones of the overall story. Yeah, I mean, structurally, that kind of always made sense to me. I, I think of life as being character driven. So in some ways, it's the most obvious structure. You know, the first part of this book is the reverend and the second part is the lawyer and the third part is the writer. Um, so it, it, it had a kind of characterological integrity to me. Um, the chronology works such that the reverend is kind of the engine of this story. So it makes mm. sense that we meet him first. And the way the book hands off the story to Tom Radney you know, is when the Reverend's life has ended. And the Grisham part of the book is is not one of the Reverend's trials, although we hear about those. The The actual trial is the trial of the vigilante, which obviously sequentially follows the Reverend's murder. And then handing the story off to Harper Lee made sense to me because this was already the biggest thing that had happened in Coosa or Tallapoosa County before she got involved. And her involvement only made it even more interesting and important to folks. So I think the kind of underlying chronology of these characters makes sense too. But I know what you mean. There are a lot of books, especially recent books, that, that I admire that, that kind of do the braided work of moving between subjectivities or jumping around a, a chronology. And I like Eric Larson, and he does that pretty well in The Devil in the White City so, you know, I think those things can work and some stories lend themselves to that. But I, I think the danger with the three characters who form Furious Hours would have been to make the connections between them seem stronger than they are. So, you mm -hmm. know, I, I think the long and the short of it is in some ways these these three people had a lot in common. You know, they were born within a few years of each other, all in small Alabama towns. Um, but the reality is the the son of two black sharecroppers who worked as a sharecropper who went into the army when it was segregated and came home to an Alabama that was just as segregated and had very limited economic opportunity for someone like him is very different from his white lawyer who went into the army, joined the JAG Corps, came home with legal training and a financial start that let him build a political and legal career and do incredibly well. And same thing for Harper Lee, you know, you, you, you can begin to itemize all the axes of difference for, you know, we were talking about her reception as a female novelist. And look, she went to the University of Alabama when women couldn't wear jeans. This is just it's a tremendously different experience for women in the Deep South. And I think in some interesting ways, you know, she was both a figure immensely of her culture in terms of race and money, but 
in terms of gender, you know, an extremely countercultural person who really did find a home and a community in New York that she didn't find in the small town South. And so I think trying to braid those stories or kind of chop them up would have made these people seem more similar or more connected than they are. So for me, it made sense to have the book be these three discrete sections where there is a moment these people all meet. They meet in this Alabama courtroom, as it were, but their lives both before and after that were extremely different. And the divergences are just as interesting as as what brings them together. So that that's why it kind of made sense to me. Um, but, you know, I think the wonderful thing about storytelling and look, we just talked about this with Ghost Set a Watchman and To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, in a lot of ways, that's the same story told twice. I'm sure someone else could pick up these characters and tell the story of the Maxwell case in a totally different version. Um, and, you know, that's why, especially, especially when it comes to true crime, I quote this letter in the book where Harper Lee is talking about Lizzie Borden. And there are dozens of books about Lizzie Borden because everybody has a different theory. Everybody has a different narrative structure. Everybody has a different kind of way into and out of it. So I think that's one of the nice things. I just think life is complicated. And when you have a nonfiction story, you know, there are so many ways of telling it and so many ways of putting a book together. So this was just one. I mean, you obviously have done so much research in so many seemingly tangential subjects. You give us biographies of people that just cross the path of the story. We hear about their parents and where they grew up and what family they're from. And and then, of course, there were these really significant non-human characters in the book, life insurance. I mean, that's a book in and of itself, just a history of life insurance. And, you know, you go back as far as the Roman Empire when you're telling us about that. And voodoo, the history of voodoo and, and the role that that plays in in people's fear of the reverend. And then also just the topography and the natural history of the area, which again, I mean, you must have read so many books to put together just those three, four pages where, you know, you really go into the detail of it. I'm wondering how much of a struggle it was to not let some of those side (laughs) stories really take over the narrative. That's the polite way of asking the question on behalf of people, you know, who are like, geez, where's the Wikipedia version of this? You know, just tell me, did he do it? Or, you know, just tell me, did she finish the book? And I don't know. I mean, I heard you say in the introduction, you know, you've you've been there in Colombia for 16 years. Mm. And so I don't know how people tell stories in Colombia. I've never been. I'm, I'm sorry. In fact, I'll only get to kind of meet everyone over Zoom. But um I think in Alabama, and and certainly where I'm from, storytelling is discursive. And, you know, it's so funny, the version of things, which is like, oh, you you introduce us to someone and then we find out what their parents did or, (laughs) you know, where their grandparents live. And people have to talk the way they talk and write the way they write. And I just grew up with a raconteur culture where that's how people tell stories. And, you know, I'd be driving around with my father and... I'd say who lives there and the next 20 (laughs) minutes of the car ride was, you know, like, here's who lives there now. Here's where they used to live. You know, they bought the farm from so-and-so and just life is very layered. And my father couldn't go back and tell you like the wives of Henry VIII, but he could tell you the wives of every farmer in three counties. And bring history to life in a very lived and textured Mm -hmm. way. And so I I think for me that that is what makes storytelling interesting. And you can always do the shallow or the quick version. And sometimes that's what life calls for. I couldn't have written this book without all of the 
journalists who covered the original story and did the kind of breaking news version of, you know, what time something happened or which law enforcement officer worked the case. But for me, you know, this was my first book and, and what made it feel like a book was realizing no matter where you looked, every character, every dimension of the story had depth to it and and had a history to them and a kind of interconnectedness that you wanted to get into. So when someone told me there was a black preacher who committed a half a million dollars worth of insurance fraud, my first question was, how the heck did he do it? Right. So then the, to answer the question of, well, how did he do it? You have to know a little bit about how life insurance works. Mm-hmm. And when someone else says, you know, well, when people couldn't figure out why an all white jury didn't convict a black minister of killing his wife, even though there seemed to be no other suspects and plenty of evidence and, you know, a pile of life insurance to provide the motive. And then, you know, you say to them, well, why do you think he wasn't convicted? And one person tells you he has a great lawyer and someone else says, well, you know about the voodoo. Mm -hmm. I absolutely did not know about the voodoo, you know, and (laughs) then wanted to understand, you know, like, okay, is this a total canard like the Madison Jones, you know, she gave him all of her files business or what is voodoo? What, What do people mean when they talk about the hoodoo man or about potions or charms or are they just pulling my leg because I'm, you know, a New Yorker writer who's come down to learn about this small town or do they really believe it? And then realizing, okay, this is part of the story. You can't just ignore it. You you want to bring it to life and you want to do it justice. So that's what makes it fun for me. But you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think a writer has real responsibility in titrating the plot and making sure that Every book that's 200 pages could have been 2,000. <laughs> so I've met some of these people, you know, people who say, oh, I love, you know, I wish you had just written about Harper Lee because I thought there was too much about Tom Ratty and politics. <laughs> or, you know, I just love the Reverend. I wish you had just written about the murders. I don't really care about novelists. So you, you end up trying to meet the needs of many kinds of readers, um, but ultimately only meeting your own. So I think it's a wonderful question. I am mindful you have to be judicious. And I'm lucky, like Harper Lee, I I have a couple of really great editors in my life and had a great editor for the book. And so sometimes you just have to defer to other people. You know, it doesn't matter that the Lake Martin Dam, you know, you were talking about the um, geology and the kind of natural history of Alabama being so, so much a part of my book. I did read a lot. I talked to people who worked for the Army Corps of Engineers. You know, I read all these early accounts of building the dam and about hydroelectric power more generally and about the Tallapoosa River and the Alabama River and the river sheds of, of Alabama. And, you know, but I, I trust the editor who was like, OK, I, I think three pages of the day. It's very evocative. I understand you're trying to write your own little genesis because, you know, I love scripture. And for me, part of what that damn story sets up is is an ideology of evil. You know, where where does evil come from? How do we change the landscape? How do we think about the world in these metaphoric ways, not just literal ways? And so that that was a really easy, you know, like let let's let's leave it at the three pages. I know you could do thirty more, but let's leave it where it is. So yeah, I, I hope people bring patience to it. There is, you know, you can go get the Wikipedia version or you can just turn the pages really quickly to the end if you're in a hurry. But yeah. I mean, it it is incredibly interesting. I mean, all those things were things I didn't know before. So I I thank you for the introduction to them because they were critical components of the story. And in a short space of time, I learned enough 
for my my general general knowledge. Well, that's awfully kind of you. Um, I think yeah, you, I'll I'll just have you go. You know, talk to anybody in town who's who's bored with the life insurance. But yeah. Well, another tangential but very forceful character in the book, and again, we could spend the next three hours talking about Truman Capote and his relationship with Harper Lee. I mean, I think it's fascinating that they were childhood besties, that they grew up next door to each other for a period of years and then continued to stay in touch. And almost how unrequited their friendship felt sometimes. It mm. seemed like Harper Lee was always there to help him out and he didn't always return the favour. But one of the things when Capote wrote in Cold Blood, which of course Harper Lee was so involved with as his, what was it, assistant <laughs> researcher, <Yeah>. he <laughs> called it a non-fiction novel, which clearly was a term that really irked Harper Lee because it gave the writer of ostensible truth a grey area of invention and a grey area which Capote definitely exploited. Why do you think she was so hard line on this? Because really, In Cold Blood became this model this for this new journalism, and it was all the rage, yet she just couldn't do it. And was that part maybe of why she couldn't write The Reverend? I think so. You know, you're, you're absolutely right. It was a surprisingly conservative point of view. Um, Harper Lee's father bought a newspaper when she was a kid, and she grew up with him writing editorials and him shaping coverage of the community ar- around them. And then she was a columnist for the student newspaper at the University of Alabama. So, you know, she had thought about journalism and about journalistic ethics, and I think just maintained a very conservative view of them which is there is a hard line between fiction and nonfiction, and you don't cross it. And if you are inventing, if you are speculating, if you are creating dialogue or shaping scenes, then you are a novelist. And look, she was an autobiographical novelist. Her father, A.C. Lee, is the model for Atticus Finch. And she wrote, some would say, a more nonfiction version of his life and his politics in Go Set a Watchman, you know, in depicting the White Citizens Council, in, in writing critically about the kind of genteel racism that I think we're, we're all more inclined to talk about today, which is to say the less extreme version of the racism that people expect in the KKK or an extremist group like that. But then she also wrote the To Kill a Mockingbird version which was much more fictionalized, much more stylized. And in any event, she would have characterized both as fiction. Both were novels. And it didn't matter that they were indebted to life. It didn't matter that the details of the town of Maycomb bore some relationship to Monroeville. She was very clear about what she was doing. And I think for that reason, she was extremely vexed by the decisions Truman Capote made. You know, he started as a fiction writer and then moved into journalism and had a great deal of success as a, um, you know, today we use these terms like narrative journalist, long form journalist. You know, he was writing long pieces, a lot of them for The New Yorker, but plenty of other places, too. And he felt that nonfiction was an undeveloped art form and that the way for nonfiction to advance was to start making use of the techniques of the novel. So there should be more dialogue, there should be more characterization, there should be more speculation, you know, psychological speculation on the part of the writer to bring to life the, quote, deeper truths of what happened. And we still see these debates play out all the time now. Plenty of true crime documentaries come in for this kind of criticism, you know, should you invent dialogue, should you stage dramatic reenactments? You mentioned the new journalism, which is frankly probably the most comfortable literary 
category into which we would place Capote. So people like Tom Wolfe, people like John Didion, you know, people who were really writing highly stylized prose, but who every so often were accused of fabrication is too strong a word, I think, um, but occasionally fabrication, someone like Gay Talese, you know, if what you are writing is not a literal transcription of what someone said, you're, quote, shaping their quotations. Mm. You know, if you're staging from memory scenes that you represent as if they were actual, accurate, recorded conversations, then readers have a right to question the choices you're making. And I think, you know, for Harper Lee, those would have been questions she would have asked and and scrutiny and objections she would have brought to In Cold Blood, even if she hadn't been involved. But the the real ire for her came from having been part of the reporting process. So she wasn't just an outside observer. She had met these people. She had sat through Capote's interviews with them. She sat through the trial. She met the murderers. She had a lot of firsthand experience. And, you know, assistant researchist might be the most condescending title one friend has ever given one <laughs> friend. You know, he, he might well have said more generously collaborator or companion or something, but she was there and she made all these notes and she typed all these transcripts and drew all these diagrams. And um, But a deeper question too, which is, you know, you went to this town, Capote went out to Kansas to write about the murder victims and to write about the experience of the town And the book he ended up writing was not quite an exonerative book, but it was an indictment of the death penalty. And it was a book whose sympathies ultimately in really sly and then kind of direct ways sat with the murderers, not the victims. And so I think for Harper Lee, there really was whatever kind of feelings she would have had about the the fad of new journalism on her own, here she was confronted with this lived experience. And she stayed in touch with some of the folks in Kansas where these murders had happened and maintained friendships with these people and and saw what the book did to their story. Um, So I, I think she was, you know, awfully invested in those converse. I mean, she cared about literature. She cared about truth. I, I don't think she was in any way a kind of postmodernist writer. So she, again, had a kind of conservatism about the truth and how much we can know about it and the obligation of a nonfiction writer to deliver on it, to not take liberties with things. And so all of that is a you know, big sort of build up to what the heck happened with the Maxwell case. Well, for one thing, the truth was really hard to come by. If you set yourself to the standard of absolute indisputable truth, what do you do with someone who was accused of six murders but never convicted of any of them? And what do you do with a lawyer who sees himself as a cross between Atticus Finch and Robert Redford, but who you believe to be a kind of detective novel villain? Someone who sees himself... Mm, Slightly dubious character. Yeah, someone who sees himself as a hero of the civil rights movement, but was a kind of ultimately a kind of moderate on race and a self-promotional progressive. And which is just to say, there's a reason Harper Lee had had such success as a novelist, but struggled as a nonfiction writer. If you decide that you can take liberties and you can invent scenes or you can stage scenarios that dramatize someone's character or draw it out, for her, I think that was an easier task than actually pulling from transcripts and using documents to make a case for something that was inchoate and confusing and contradictory. You know, if you go from telling the story of Tom Robinson, the wrongfully accused 
African-American hero in many ways of Mockingbird, you know, the, the man whose trial and conviction shapes the, the kind of courtroom drama of that book, to telling the story of the Reverend Maxwell, truly one of the few black men to be found not guilty by white jury after white jury, or, you know, as I explain in the book, like, in decades of American history where the life insurance industry exploited black family after black family, but you find the one black guy who managed to make a half a million dollars off these companies, it's not a fairy tale or a fable about race. It really is a muddy, complicated, sordid story. And I think she brought a lot of ambition from her work with Capote, but that ambition and those high standards were ultimately really hard to meet. And look, at the end of the day, we can all go to a bookstore and pick up a copy of In Cold Blood and scrutinize Capote's choices. Um, but for Harper Lee, there's, there's no the reverend. All of those standards ultimately thwarted her effort. But to try and contrast their work as true crime writers is, is really difficult because ultimately her standards kept her from publishing. Did you ever feel thwarted by living up to her ideals for this book? <laughs> um, yes, yes, I did. Uh, it's certainly true. You know, I thought, well, you know, poor Harper Lee, you know, all this time has passed. I'll just be able to get all the court documents she couldn't. And I'll interview a few coroners and we'll get to the bottom of what happened with these cases. And I think at one point in time, you know, my smoking gun theory was, oh, obviously there was inadequate police work and toxicological investigations. And if I just can figure that out, I'll know what happened. And of course, it turns out there were very rigorous investigations. Alabama had a top-notch toxicology department that had really investigated these cases thoroughly. And the uncertainty and the, the kind of unfinishedness of those cases remained true today. And so I was just as frustrated as she was by realizing ultimately, you know, there was a lot I wasn't going to be able to deliver for the reader um, but I, I just think, you know, at the end of the day, I always had a slightly easier task because she was going to be a character for me and she would never have made herself a character. So, you know, some of what I was able to do, these kind of meta discussions of what are the choices true crime journalists make? What are the techniques of the trade or what are the dangers of the genre? I was always going to be able to use her in a way that wouldn't seem self-pitying or self-excusing because, hey, everybody's interested in the life of Harper Lee. Um, but, you know, I didn't have to have a whole chapter called The Struggles of Casey Sepp to Get Court Documents. <laughs> I could just tell you, here's Harper Lee and here's how it went. Or, you know, there, there's no there's no like confessional chapter that's me saying like how to deal with the veracity of sources. You know, not everybody who picks up the phone is going to tell you the truth. You know, instead I have, the, you know, what readers are able to do is sit with Harper Lee and think about her experience of interviewing these people and think about her experience of judging Capote's decisions. So I think that was always going to be, it's not a crutch, but it was always going to be an advantage I had that she wouldn't because in her version of events, it was going to be just the story itself and not the kind of meta experience of trying to write about it. I want to ask you about the title of the book, Furious Hours and how it might explain why Harper Lee finally gave up trying to write this book. It seems to tie together like she has a moment of clarity at Horseshoe Bend. Can you talk a little bit about the title of the book? Sure. I, I love this question because on the one hand, I, I simply get to sing the praises of my editor and the 
folks at my publisher because I called this book Furious Hours kind of from the moment I started to think about it as a book. And that title comes from a lecture that Harper Lee gave. She did very little public speaking and she loved literature and loved libraries. But if the Daniel Boone Library had come knocking, she of course would have said, no, thank you. I'll never do a public event. No, I, you know, you enjoy your one read, but leave me out of it. Um, But she did give this lecture once for a history festival in Alabama and she did it as a favor for her sister. And they begged and pleaded with her to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, but she wouldn't. She ended up giving a short lecture on her favorite Alabama historian. And he's not especially well-known even in Alabama, but um, Pickett is his name. And she loved Pickett and her father loved Pickett. And she grew up reading this kind of tome of Alabama history. And it's a notable history only because it, it sort of ends right when most people would say Alabama's history was getting started. So it ends at statehood. And Pickett decided that the story of Alabama ended when the Creek Empire ended. So when the indigenous culture of Alabama was was forced out. So that happened, you've just said, at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And that battle took place not far from where the Maxwell murders had taken place and where this trial took place. And so Harper Lee in that lecture about Pickett starts to talk about why it was he wasn't able to write beyond the end of the Creek Empire. And I think it's an interesting question, period, you know, why people begin and end where they do. We've just had a discussion of that even with my book. But certainly for her, that was a very interesting question. And one of the things she says, she says that, you know, the Creek Empire ended in a few furious hours at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And most people, if they know that battle, know it only because Andrew Jackson was involved. And some of the military leaders who come out of the Creek Wars go on to have national importance. But Harper Lee actually sympathized a great deal with the Creeks and why one empire ends and another begins. And whether it happens in violence or coincidence or happenstance or fate. And, you know, so she's giving this lecture and she's talking about all of this. And what I knew reading it already was that when Harper Lee was working on the Reverend, she stayed in a motel called the Horseshoe Bend Motel. And in that lecture, she says this kind of shocking thing about how Pickett left his heart at Horseshoe Bend. And she gives this really emotionally, almost psychoanalytically charged reading of his work as a historian and says, you know, basically his heart was broken. And that's why he never told the story of Alabama as a state. So I loved all this, and I I had always wanted the book to have a title that had something from her, and I'd read Mockingbird kind of over and over again looking for a phrase or something, and Furious Hours struck me as kind of the right register because it spoke to the murders, you know, these absolutely violent episodes that kind of get the book going, and I love the idea of the kind of furious pursuit of civil rights that characterized the, the political years of Tom Radney, and for me too, there was the sense of Harper Lee, the writer, who ultimately knows that you just need a few furious hours at the typewriter to get your work going and to get the book going and for it to come together, but could never quite do it. So I loved it. And that was the title all along. But, you know, I said, this question is so great because I get to sing the praises of other people and their expertise. You know, (laughs) God bless those folks because they're the ones who are like, can we have a subtitle 
with some nouns that actually tell people what the book is about. So murder, fraud, and the last trial of Harper Lee hopefully clarifies what would otherwise be a kind of obscure and, and, and mysterious phrase there. Well, I mean, the secondary part of the title that your editors persuaded you to add on to the cover of it being about murder, fraud, and the last trial of Harper Lee, and I wonder if you think we'll ever stop putting Harper Lee on trial for her struggles, her perceived failings, her battle with drink, her relationships. Mm. We can't get enough of examining this this woman who just wanted to be left in peace. And maybe how your book is part of that continued trial by examination. It feels like we should maybe just say thank you and good night at some point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, poor Harper Lee. It's like, you know, the monastics, they try to withdraw from society. And then we all want to knock on the doors of their monasteries to say, like, what have you learned? What are you up to? You know, what's transcendent or not? So, yes, I should say, I mean, look, Harper Lee is a character in my book and I'm not. And I can't imagine, you know, I, I cherish my privacy and I feel like the beauty of my life is its smallness. And I'm very happy when I do these kinds of events. People always ask me questions about her and many more about her than about me. And so I know what you mean. One one does wonder why isn't gratitude enough or why do we have a kind of biographical industrial complex? And yet I'm not only a participant in it, I'm a consumer of it. I look across the room right now, I'm in my office and you know, I've got like six shelves of biography and it's every artist who's ever meant anything to me. It's T.S. Eliot, it's John Keats, it's Rachel Carson, you know, it's the good and the bad. I mean, I'm looking at a Cecil Rose biography because of course I wanted to understand his life. It's people I admire and people I despise and, you know, the contemporary political shelves are full of the same kind of motley crew. So yeah, I don't know why we can't just be grateful. We do have the need to understand and contextualize artists and their work and great men and women of history. So I can't really explain it. I mean, it seems as mysterious to me as the questions that animate the reverence section of the book. You know, why do we do terrible things to one another? Why is there violence and evil and crime? I think the same thing. If only, if only there were no true crime to write about, but of course there is. And if only, you know, if only we could be satisfied with great literary works, but we're not. They just create an appetite to understand how someone did it or why they could only do it once in the case of Harper Lee. Well, Casey, your book raises as many questions as it answers, which for me is always a sign of a good book as it makes me go away and want to do more research. Columbia's One Read participants will spend the next month engaged with the multitude of issues your book raises and the schedule of events can be found at oneread.dbrl.org. Casey, you have been so gracious and generous with your time today. Thank you so much for letting us peek behind the scenes of Fury hours, murder, fraud, and the last trial of Harper Lee. Thanks so much. Truly a delight. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank 
you to my guest today, author Casey Sepp. And thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!